How's it going, everyone? Today we are joined by the impressive and incredible Robert Clotworthy. And if you guys are fans of uh, television and binge watching, like I am, I'm sure you've heard his voice on the Curse of Oak Island television show and Ancient Aliens. And also his work in the video game series StarCraft, playing Jim Raider, which is, if you're into video games, it's probably a top five, top ten character hero in the video game series. And uh, he's also a practitioner of the martial art Kung Fu Sansu, which is uh, very interesting. So glad to have you out here, Robert. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, John. So with COVID everything going on the last year, your industry, while affected, obviously, with filming, you were able to still kind of be in your own little studio doing your work, right? Yeah, and, and I, I'm one of the fortunate few that I actually was... I guess exposed at some point had absolutely no symptoms and uh, have the antibodies. I don't know how that happened. I didn't even get a pimple, but uh, when I went to have a, a blood test, I, I found out I had the antibodies. So I feel comfortable going into the studio. So it allowed me to not just only do stuff from my home studio. And we were doing that remotely, but actually go into the studio. So as far as voiceover is concerned, fortunately it's one area of the business, especially the area that I do with narration that really hasn't been too adversely affected. We were a bit anxious as far as Oak Island was concerned um, because, you know, the guys normally would go up there in March or April and it was delayed, 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 delayed. And they finally got up there. So we were worried as to whether there was even going to be a season eight at this point, but um, they made it up and, and the show is terrific this season, I think. And we'll talk about that, but congrats on the, the ratings that show has been pulling in, especially how long it's been on TV has been incredible. And it's yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Last week, I mean there's a show on tonight. This is Tuesday night, Tuesday, but last week's episode was the highest rated of the entire season. We had over three point one million people tuning in. We so we we broke the three million barrier. We were at at, at about two point eight, two point nine the last six or seven weeks, and this this last episode we cracked the three million. So, it's obviously uh, striking a nerve with people. People are enjoying it. There's something very therapeutic with that show that you want so much goodwill to come for Marty and Rick and the team. And it's just it's amazing how it started off as what is like what's Oak Island, and now it feels like. Like Philippe, myself personally, that I'm part of like helping these guys. Cause I get so like anxious, and I'm like, how many more? Did they find this the first week and then realize that this show is so good that we have to draw this out ten years. Like it's gotta be for you. How invested are you in this outside the fact that obviously it's you, you work for them, you do the narration and stuff like that. Uh, it's 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 interesting because the. Um... The producers of that show are the same producers that do Ancient Aliens. And I've been working with this team for, goodness, I think it's been about 16 years now, which is which is amazing for an actor to have one employer for that period of time consistently. And um, one of the one of the wonderful things about the uh, the creative producers of, of this show is they were able to target and find a story that they felt would be very interesting to the people. And when, when they heard about these guys who were up there at Oak Island and they, and they were doing this prior to right. history channel coming up and, and uh, you know, filming what they were doing, this, this was generally their, their passion. And I think the guys have a very interesting relationship. They're brothers. They're uh, they're, 
the interplay between them is very is very fascinating. They've they've got a great team of very very interesting people that are that are up there helping them, and they're really trying to do it. This this is not a a, a show where we're you know tossing a few coins into into the money pit and they, then they find it and it's like oh wow look what we found. No, th- this is completely legitimate. Um, you know the uh, the two brothers were especially Marty were pretty well off. Uh, right. beforehand. So they really didn't need this to, to pay the rent. And um, it's, I think it's, it's fascinating because it's a, it's a show that everybody can watch. You know, there's nothing that's going to be offensive to anyone that's going to be on this show. So you can have your, your six-year-old watch the, watch the show with you along with, with grandpa, and you're going to find something interesting. When we, when we discuss something that is of historical uh, significance, like a, a, a specific date of when, you know, X, Y, Z may have happened. And we tell that story. Uh, that's all true. So there is an element of of education that comes with it. And also, it, it I think it keys into uh, something that all of us as as humans are, are, are interested in. We all, we've all, even as kids, you know, look for treasure. You know, even if it's in the yard or, or or gone down the street, and it's it, it's fascinating to 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 search for that. So it it taps into that, and then these guys take it to a level where basically money is. I don't want to say it's no object because they do set a budget, but they have a lot of money to spend to search, and so it's fascinating to see what they do, who they bring in. Uh, I think last season I was reading a. Uh, one of the scripts, and they t- and it was talking about some some machine, some specially designed machine that came from Korea to do you know some kind of exploratory borehole. And I was thinking, wait a minute, this is this is like a one of a kind machine. It's coming from Korea. How far in advance do you have to order this thing because it's not cheap? And then how does it get there? Do they right. take the ship to you know the the west coast of Canada and then drive it all the way across? Is it going through the Panama Canal? It's so when you when you think about the logistics of everything that's involved, it's it's pretty fascinating. And then you actually see them do it. It's it's pretty much real time, and it's 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 a pretty good metaphor for what life is because if you're if you're looking for that end result, if you're looking for your keys, you know you you stop searching when you find them. But this is the kind of thing where will it end? When will it end? When will they find the treasure? Who knows? You know, you right. find out when you find it, if you find it. But in the meantime, you, said it, you don't give up. Right. You said it best. And I don't watch a lot of television. And so for me to get drawn to the show, it's like you talked about it. If I want to learn about the Knights of Templar or a certain event or a shipwreck, I'm going on the phone later that night the computer yeah. and be like, Let's research this. The, the fact that the show is, it kind of builds up that adventurous, wonderful spirit of expo- exploration yeah. and the learning. Yeah. And it's, it, that's so fascinating about that show. Yeah. And it also, you know, there's a lot of disappointment in the show. And so you, you see how, right. how they deal with it, how they overcome that, how they budget, how they plan. Some Somebody may have an idea and, the, and that person is outvoted. They do something else. So I think it's really fascinating for young people to see how, people get together to solve a problem, how, how they work together. So it's also educational in that way. And I've had uh, parents who have, have written to me or written into the show and they comment how, how helpful it is 
with with their kids because they watch it, they see these these uh, the the issues that develop, they see how they deal with it, they learn some history, the kids can do some research about it, and also, you know, for 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 boys, <laughs> there was a, there was. Right. They used to they used to sell like just a video for for like a little boy, and all it was was just a construction site. It was just a camera set up outside a construction site, and you would see you know trucks going in and people unloading stuff and a crane, and nothing was happening other than they're just building something. But little boys would sit there and just stare at it and, and be fascinated. So you also have that element of seeing these crazy machines go in there and dig and they blow things up and they, and they have sonar. So it's all this fascinating stuff that, you know, guys get into wetsuits and go down into these things. So that, so it's dangerous. So it's, it's got a lot of, uh, of elements and it's all real. It's real. For a show like that, since it's very all tied in, based on the seasons and stories keep you on and stuff. Are you given, are they still going to watch, you're given a script? Is there like a writer that helps you write this? Or if there is, is there ever stuff that you come across you're like, well, my character as you wouldn't say it this way based on what I said before? Like how much control do you have over what is being actually aired through the narration? Yeah, I don't want to say that it's a completely collaborative process with me, but I call myself the last line of defense. Because if okay. I if I say it, it's going out there and it could it can end up in the show. So uh, the way the show works is the guys go up. Let's say they normally go up in April and they're there through November because after November, it's too cold to do anything there. So they they basically have six or seven months that they can go up there and and do whatever it is their work. Of course they plan ahead of time as to what that next season is going to be, what kind of work they're going to do. What their what their basic plan is, then we send up a film crew with them, and we just film whatever it is they're doing, and based on uh, what they find or don't find or events that happen, they start piecing together uh, a show that that makes some kind of narrative sense. In other words, it it has a beginning, a middle, and an end for for each episode. We have to have you know, some, some drama in there. We have to have, we have to kind of highlight, uh, you know, uh, things that might be a little bit more dramatic. You know, you, you, tr you try to make it kind of a, a little bit more interesting. And from that, then they write a, a narrative script that has to do with that particular uh, episode. Now, sometimes they may find something, let's say, for example, and they, they say, okay, let's, let's move this up in the, uh, in the in the in the chain of 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 the episodes we're going to do, or they may say, you know, let's let's delay this a little bit, just so we can kind of make sure we 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 create a narrative that kind of leads up to this. Um, but and then when when I get the script, I get the script that day. I show up at the studio that morning. They hand it to me and they say, okay, here's Oak Island, eight eight season episode eleven. And I basically I don't read through the thing. We just basically start. I go to where, where my first uh, uh, line of dialogue would be. I read it, you know, out loud to make sure it makes sense to me. Sometimes we'll find some grammatical errors. Sometimes we'll find, uh, you know, maybe part of the story doesn't make sense to me. And I'll say, I don't really understand what's happening here. Can you kind of explain this to me? And then, and then we might rewrite it a little bit to, uh, to make it a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit more clear. And... Um, I'll basically do it twice. Uh, 
and let and if if there's if everything's okay, they'll take one of those as the take, and we move on to the next one. If not, then we we go back and we do it uh, do it again until until everybody's happy. So, would you kind of start doing this type of work? I know you you started as a teenager with your father and stuff. Were there voice actors growing up that kind of resonated with you? They're kind of like, man, like this is really cool. But at what point did you realize you have that voice? Well, um, as a kid, you know, you're not thinking that far ahead. Um, uh, I was, I, I, my father was a producer of, of radio commercials. So every once in a while he would invite me into the studio and I would go down as a, as a young kid and watch these voice actors doing whatever the heck it is that they were doing for that particular commercial. And as luck would have it, a lot of the most, well, I guess a lot of the voices that were the cartoon characters that I was watching on, on television were the people that were coming in. And I would get to meet them and I'd see how they would react. And I was always amazed at what they could do. And so as a kid, one of the things that I just naturally uh, found interesting was that I would read out loud. I mean, some people may, you know, go in the backyard and shoot hoops for an hour. I would, I would read out loud. I would like to, I, I like telling the story and I would challenge myself to see if I could read the story, have it make sense without knowing where it was going. So I've said before, it's, it's almost like you're, you're a lizard where one eye is here, the other eye is there. You know, so you don't know whether the sentence has an exclamation point at the end, whether it has a question mark at the end. You don't know where you're going with it. So I would challenge myself to see if I could kind of figure it out as I was going along. And then that turned into where I had a, a friend of mine who lived down the street. And he, had, he of course, uh, was lucky enough to have an actual four-track tape recorder. And, you know, reel to reel. And right. he would write little, you know, little stories, you know, little, you know, almost like a, a play or something. And, and have characters. And and uh, I remember we used to do on, on Halloween, we would turn his house into kind of a, a Halloween experience where people could go in from room to room. And we would have different speakers set up in different rooms. And we would have something recorded. And, uh, you know, I would do some stuff. He would do some stuff. And it started out as just being fun. I think that's critical uh, for for if to, to be passionate about something because if you have fun with it, then you can then once you have fun, that will give you the base to where when you really want to learn how to do it well, and that will be challenging. That's not always easy. It's not always a simple thing. But if you have that love for it then that will sustain you through the periods of where it's challenging. You know, they say that if, uh, you know, for example, if uh, a kid wants to play tennis, you know, a little kid picks up a tennis racket, don't teach them anything. Just let them take the racket, let them smack it, let them hit a ball. Doesn't matter what they do. Let them just have fun. Eventually, they'll come up to you and they'll say, how do you hit that ball? And you go, oh, you just do this. Let it go. Let them, let them develop the love for it. Let them have some fun. Then when they want to get serious, then they'll be able to. So when the, with the question of when did I know that I had that voice, I, I don't know. I just, I just was always having fun and, and enjoying it and exploring it and going further and further and further with it and challenging myself and 
you know, eventually it's started to, to pay off where people kept well, I'm, st- I'm, well, having, I'm having as much fun now as I was when I was six years old doing that stuff. That's what's great about it. I love it. Growing up, I remember the show Unsolved Mysteries and Robert Stack and the Derration. And I love the, the the court cases and the the, yeah. the the background story was just secondary because I was so fascinated by Robert's ability to just narrate. I felt that made the show. Yeah. And yeah. it's kind of missing the current rendition of it. Obviously, you can't replace Stack, but even now, Forensic Files, a show like that where you have the stuff, the story, the background, but the narration really sets the pacing and you, it really draws you in. Yeah. And it's, I'm always amazed the fact that, yeah, you watch Oak Island, but do I, do I care if Rick and Marty find the treasure? I'd, I'd love I wish they found it, all of it. Yeah. But I also am so drawn in by your voice and with ancient aliens. Some of that stuff, I'm like, what the hell are they talking about? But <laughs> Your voice almost acts as like the the balance between the crazy scientific stuff that might be over someone's head to the everyday person like myself that you're going to take us on this journey for 60 minutes from beginning to end. And it's just amazing the importance of narration. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I had a, a, in voiceover, we have what they call vocal signatures, where if an agent were to describe who you are, what you sound like to someone who doesn't know you. They'd say, oh, he's, uh, he's, you know, he, he's, he's funny. He's, he's acerbic. He's kind of wry. He's, or, or he's, he's, or he's, he's dumb as a box of, of doorknobs, whatever it might be. I mean, if you hear okay. that, somebody tells you that you go, oh, okay. I know what that sounds like for the vocal signature that I received. And I thought it was brilliant was from a casting director. She, she called it approachable intelligence. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm intelligent. It just that means when you listen to me, it sounds like I know what I'm talking about. And along with that, it's not off-putting. It's not like I'm a, a, a professor trying to s- tell you something. I'm, I'm allowing you in. I'm sharing this with you. I'm sharing some information that I have. And w- knowing that, and knowing that as my focal signature, that's kind of the way that I approach these shows is I don't want to be off-putting. I want to be inclusive. You know, come with me on this. It's not going to be scary. It's it, There might be some some spooky stuff, but we're going to get through it. I promise you. Right. Aliens. We're going to kind of get through this. So, but you're, but you're so correct with the, the power of narration. Uh, part of it is because the when you hear the voice, it gets in to your brain. You know, as, as the listener, you fill in the blanks. Sometimes when you see, now that you see what I look like, you're, it may be tough to listen to the same to the show the same way because now you, you, you see what I look like. In your mind, if you're only hearing my voice, you, you can imagine anything, you know? And it, right, right. there's not this disconnect. I mean, how often do you hear a, you know, a singer, let's say a, a singer and... Um, you just love that person's voice. And the first time you see him, you go, God, he is but ugly. Oh, my. You know, whatever it might be. Right, right. Yeah, it's like it's difficult to get past that again. So I, there's, a, there's a unique power to, uh, to voice and to narration. And as I like to say, I have a, a, a face made for, uh, for voiceover. <laughs> wow. So when you're voicing over, say, Ancient Aliens, are uh-huh. you 
Are you Robert Clotworthy, the person doing the narration, or has Robert Clotworthy become a character for that specific narration? Well, one one good thing one thing you need to always focus on if you're a voiceover person is you want to be able to convey the truth, because right. microphone, as we call it, is a great bullshit detector. People listening, they can tell whether you're not telling the truth, whether you're lying or not. So as as an actor, when I when I approach the the voiceover, I try to be true to myself and I try to convey my my attitude, my opinion about certain things in the show. If that's what that's one of the reasons why I don't want the script in advance. So if there's something, let's say, for example, in an episode of Ancient Aliens, I'm not saying this is uh, a, a a spoiler alert or anything, but let's say, um, you know, we now have definitive proof that aliens exist. And here is the photo and here's the video of, of an alien talking to us. Now that would be pretty amazing. That would, yes. that would be pretty life altering. Uh, so, and as a viewer, as, a, as you know, if I'm getting this information, it's going to be pretty amazing to me. And so my gut feeling is one of amazement. So I hopefully will convey that attitude. Or it may be, let's say it was a different narrator, and I go, this is bullshit. This is, a, <laughs> this is just crap. Then if I go with that, then you're, then you're going to hear that I think that this is nonsense, but it's still going to come across as truthful because it is. So that's that's the one thing that, that I, I try to do is I have a natural enthusiasm for the show. I'm intrigued and interested in the information. I'm curious as to what's going to happen out there. And I'm also, I stay true to the, to the producer's view, which is one of being an agnostic, but open to the information. One of the, one of the wonderful things about ancient aliens is we don't say this is how it is. We say, this is what people have thought it is in the past. You make the decision. You know the Egyptians said this. The, you know the, you know, the Incas said that. The Mayans said this. Uh, this is part of the, the their religion. Part of their stories. This is what Native Americans said. What do you think? Does this does this all fit in? This is a possibility, and that's why I, we always say, "Is it possible? Could it be?" And we're we're asking you that question. What do you think? So it's it's right, right. that's part of the brilliance of, of of the show and why I think it works so much. Now I know guitar players that will get their hands insured, or soccer players will get their feet and different stuff. So for you, yeah, obviously we always we all use our voices and stuff. But is there something extra you have to do for you? And then what is your daily routine to kind of maintain that voice? Like obviously, like you must have different eating, drinking. If you smoke, have, there must be stuff like that where you have to maintain a yeah. flat line, correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm always aware of it. I'm for, fortunately, knock on wood, I'm a pretty, pretty naturally healthy person anyway, and I don't do a lot of uh, stuff that's going to damage it. I'm not, I'm not a smoker. I'm not a heavy drinker. I'm, uh, I, I, eat, I eat pretty healthy. Uh, but, you know, there's, and I, and I certainly try to avoid yelling. <laughs> You know, screaming is if you're at a concert, if you're at a concert, for example, it seems like the, the biggest strain to the voice or even at a at a going out to dinner is if yep. you're trying to raise your voice so you can be heard at the table over the, the noise that's in a, in a restaurant. That seems to me what strains my voice more than anything. I, I, I'm pretty good about being able to 
give you some uh, some pretty powerful yells if if, if need be. But uh, I, I try to avoid that and try to just stay somewhat chill. <laughs> I, I don't have insurance on my voice. Uh, you know, I probably I probably should. But um, yeah, no, I, it, you know, you drink you drink a lot. I drink a lot of water. That's that's one of the uh, the things that uh, they you know you have to stay hydrated. You don't if you're going into a studio, uh, you're not going to drink a big glass of milk or eat a bunch of crackers before you go in there. That would be a mistake. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, I've also I've also found here's a funny aside is when I go into the studio, they uh, they usually provide pr provide lunch for us. So if we're splitting the session up you know, morning and an afternoon, we have lunch in between. If they, if they serve me fish, I'm screwed because my stomach just starts making all kinds of noises. <laughs> it's just, right. it's just weird. It's just weird. So fascinating. So let's kind of talk about the fitness aspect. And yeah. so in March, I started this podcast and I reached out to a bunch of martial artists. And one of the people I've got to really respect and become friends with is Kathy Long. Well, she is a grandmaster in Kung Fu Sansu, yeah, champion kickboxer, just one, probably the top female fighter of all time, or at least in that discussion, in fighter in general. And when I'm doing research on you, when I reach out to you, because obviously from the TV show and stuff, I see the Kung Fu Sansu, and I'm like, one, I don't hear this a lot, and now I'm really interested because I don't picture the guy that does these voices into martial arts, but there must be a connection where the mind, body, and does that, does that type of training in martial art help you with, say, Jim Raider from StarCraft or a certain person you're trying to emulate if you're doing a video game yeah, or something it, like that? It, actually, it was, a, um, uh, it was a very, very important part of, part of my life. I did it for a lot of years, for, my goodness, I want to say close to 20 years. And I even, Incredible. I even taught it the last, uh, last, last few years. Um, and it was, it was something that always interested me, you know, as, as a kid, I was, uh, I was not a big kid, <laughs> you know, I was kind of a slender kid. So, and there were a lot of people that were a lot bigger than me and I didn't like the idea of being physically intimidated. So I wanted to, to learn how to take care of myself. And, um, at the, at the same time, that was when, you know, the, the old David Carradine show Kung Fu was coming out yep. and you had uh, uh, Bruce Lee in the, in the green Hornet. So, you know, Eastern martial arts were just starting to become popular. And I thought it was fascinating. And at, I belonged to this, this gym in, uh, in, in West Hollywood at the time, it was the, the old Beverly Hills health club. It was really kind of funny because it had been there for forever. And they actually had a, a nap room. <laughs> well, all these, all these old, old men would go into this room and it was really dark and they had these big, you know, loungers they could, and they would just fall asleep. So it was like this really old, old gym. But one thing they offered and they just started was a Kung Fu class. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. Let's, let's give this a shot. And I feel so lucky that I fell into Kung Fu Sansu because at the time it was fairly new in uh, the U S the fellow who was the, I guess the, the grandmaster uh, was a fellow named Jimmy H. Wu. 
who whose uncle, great uncle, was actually a monk at a monastery in China. And when he left the monastery, he actually took with him two of their books. One of the books was about fighting techniques and the other one was about philosophy. And, and these books were, I mean, like this thick. I mean, it wasn't like a small book. It wasn't like a leaflet. And what he would, what Jimmy would do, and he was the first one to teach this uh, art outside of his own family. You know, so he was actually teaching it to, to Occidentals, to, to the average person. And his studio was in El Monte. And my instructor uh, was one of his students, one of his top students. And every day we would go into class, we would get a, a new lesson of fighting techniques. And no two were alike. And so what, what was interesting to me, and also I, I, I like to refer to it as, uh, I was like Chinese street fighting because it, what, there were no rules associated with this. This was, you know, if you want to put your thumb through somebody's eye, there's the technique. Breaking bones, not a problem. I mean, all, all you know, hitting, kicking, wherever you want, it's, it's wide open. It also wasn't limited to just punches and leverages. It was punches and leverages and kicks and throws and, and you, you name it. It, it was there. So it, it hit my creative side, you know, because if I was just there, you know, throwing a straight punch for, for six weeks and that was as far as I, as I got and just trying to hit a target, it would be boring to me. Right. But for this, and since it was pure, it was literally coming from the book that was at the monastery. It hadn't been diluted. Nobody had looked at it and said, you know, I'm going to change this and I'm going to change that. And, and all of a sudden it gets filtered through 37 people before it gets to you. And it doesn't really resemble anything what it was like originally. So I really like the purity of it. And then, of course, associated with that, since these were monks that were, were doing this, there was a, a, a spiritual side to this, a philosophical side that I found very interesting and intriguing. And uh, I just didn't stop. And uh, I had a goal. I wanted to be, uh, you know, the, the belt system was something that was created so that um, Americans would, you know, we, we, right, need, right, right. we need rewards. We, need, we, need, yeah, we just can't do it for 20 years and learn. We have to get a trophy. Yeah, so so they, they, had, they had white, yellow, green, brown, black. That was it. It was just, you know, it was just five belts. And then different degrees of, of black until you got to... I think it was the seventh or eighth year of being a, a black belt when he became a master. Um, so I, I was actually able to make it to become a master. Um, and I, I, it's, it's influenced every part of my life. Uh, I mean, it's, it's made me a lot calmer. It's made me more aware. I mean, I, I always looked at it as if you, if you do this correctly, you never get into a fight <laughs> because you, you recognize danger. You recognize you're just more aware of what's happening around you. And, uh, I found that to be really illuminating. Just the fact of being present, seeing what's around you and knowing, uh, you know, and, and I've been in situations where it's, it's really been important <laughs> to know. Right. We all have. And, and, um, so it's it's something that changed my life in in the best way. And when people would ask us, they say, "Well, have you ever used it?" My instructor would always say, "I use it every day." 
because yeah, that's, that's part of it. And actually, my when I received my black belt, it was the first uh, black belt that my instructor had ever given out. And actually, Jimmy Wu, the grandmaster, came down to our studio and, and I got my black belt from him. So I was very, and I did take a few classes from him and with other instructors, but uh, I, I treasure not only just learning it, but also the, the friendships that I forged with the people. Because it's amazing to be with the same group of men and women for 10, 15 plus years, see them two, three times a week. And it's not just going there, working out and leaving, you're forging friendships. And uh, so I've had, I've had relationships that have lasted my, my entire life as a result of that. And it's not something I talk about a lot, but it's, it's something that uh, I'm very proud and very happy that I was able to, uh, to take advantage of. And I literally, every, every lesson I, I took, I kept, I kept a diary, kept a book. I would write down each and every lesson that I got. So I would say it would be something like a uh, uh, person throws a, a right punch, you know, uh, step out with your right, uh, right foot, uh, a block, block with your left, uh, step in with your left, uh, step in with, with left foot, with left foot turned out, uh, right knee up to the groin. I mean, whatever it might be, you know, just so, right. I, so I could kind of visualize it. So if I ever wanted to go back, I could recreate that lesson. And we did forms and uh, it was just, it was just great. I just, I just adored it. Loved it. Have you done voice work for like a video game that involves a character that is martial arts based? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, there's a, a game called uh, Tekken 5. And Which character were you? Martial law. <laughs> Man, that, okay, because I'm hearing your voice when you're talking about that. I'm like, what? I, th I think I don't know where. I think in that video game, all I did was a lot of grunts. It was like, oh, uh, ah, oh. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, there was a line he said, too, when he, he dark, he out KO'd you. Uh, <laughs> it's incredible. It seems like if I'm a video game person out there, like, why wouldn't I grab something with actually the extensive background with martial arts to actually Well, I'll, I'll, throw I'll tell you why, because somebody that has extensive uh, uh, <laughs> martial arts may not be able to go, ah, eh, ah, ah. They may go. <laughs> They may go, uh, yeah, uh. <laughs> right. When they get in front of a microphone, it's 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 interesting because a microphone oftentimes I've seen it. You know, you go into a studio. I used to do a lot of what they call ADR, where you would bring in a group of people, and it's like, okay, see the guy on the motorcycle in that movie. He gets he gets uh, he gets flipped off, and he has to, and he, you know, smashes into that car that's coming the opposite direction. We need a sound for him as he comes off. So you got to go, you know, make some kind of crazy thing like that. Oftentimes people will go, <laughs> and go no, that's not it. You got to, I mean, come on. I, right. If you get hit by a car, you got to, you have to feel it. You have to stay. It's, it's, it's like, I, and it, it always makes me laugh. I remember once I was, um, I was going to do some ADR on a, on a movie. It was a world war two movie or something. And uh, the ADR person said, but Robert, I can't, use you for this because they they want people that have actually been in the uh, the, the armed forces and i said wait a minute <laughs> i said i said in the armed forces but listen i've stormed the beach of normandy in saving private ryan <laughs> and i started naming all these war movies that i've been in that i've that i've had to i've been soldiers i've i've, I've been the guy that gets shot or the guy that does whatever it's 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 a different technique uh, to be able to be free, just to be able to 
to do the thing in front of the microphone as opposed to actually done it in real life. And we've had, we've had military advisors on set who have said, okay, in this kind of a situation, this is what you would say. You know, you say, okay, you know, bring, bring the 50 cal, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> so, you know, you just, you just do it. You don't, but anyway, that's, that's, that's what being an actor is, is all about. You just, just kind of, kind of pretend. Does your, how does your mindset change if you are, say, doing video game character or voice work for a TV show versus, okay, now you're going to see with Bradley Cooper and American Cypher or you're in the new season of Homeland or whatever you're doing, is there a different prep for you mentally, physically, in terms of behind or in front of the camera? Yeah, well, I mean, the obvious one, if you're doing something on camera, you have to, uh, to, memorize, right. you have to memorize your lines. That's, that's always important. And it takes, it takes a while to do um you know you need to really say it out loud hundreds of times to the to to the point of where it's just completely natural you're not you're not really thinking about it um with on-camera stuff um you, you have to understand that visually what's happening is is very important it's beyond just just your voice you can't hide behind that and you're also limited somewhat in in what you can portray when you're on camera, when you're doing a video game or you're doing a uh, narration, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares what you look like. Now with, with American sniper, uh, that was a, that was a scene, even though it was written, uh, the writer came up to me earlier in the day before I, before we shot, uh, any of the scenes. And he said that Bradley Cooper wants to expand on the, on this scene. Right. Incredible scene, by the way. Yeah. It, it, it was, it was really, really wonderful. And it's, and it was one of those things where it just worked out perfectly because the first thing that, you know, you do when somebody says, oh, uh, we're totally rewriting the scene and you're going to go on in, in 10 minutes is you start to panic. You go, oh, she, I did all, I, what, now what am I going to do? You know, that's your first thing. But then he explained to me that what, what Bradley wanted to do was to improvise the scene, that there were elements of Chris Kyle's story that they weren't able to show in the movie. Like for example, what is, how long is a tour of duty? Uh, how many, how many uh, confirmed kills did he have versus uh, possible kills? Um, you right. know, those, those kind of elements. So, uh, you know, I started talking to him. I said, okay, how much, how long is a tour? Okay. Multiply that by X number of tours. This is how number of days, this is how many days he was, he was in country. And so when we got to do the scene, we didn't rehearse it. Wow. Um, it, it, and in fact, as written at the end of the scene, I was supposed to give him a prescription of something. And we had shot the, the second scene first, which was where I take him to go and, and meet the, uh, the wounded soldiers. And he goes there and starts working with them. So I knew that the story would, that our scene was going to lead to that. So I didn't think it would make any sense for me to give him a prescription to of a Valium, right? It's like, no, that's, 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 that would, it doesn't make any sense. I'm encouraging him to get better on his own. I'm not going to just medicate him. So they said, well, do you want the prescription? And I said, no, 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 I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that, which was kind of surprising that, you know, I, I would have the, uh, the wherewithal to just kind of be able to make these choices, but I felt so comfortable. And, and by the way, I had not met Clint Eastwood or Bradley Cooper before. The first time I met them was huh. your walk on the set 
when when uh, when when Clint uh, hires you, he doesn't meet you ahead of time. You know, you go on videotape. He makes his selections. He did not. Apparently, this is the story I heard. He did not like the audition process when he was an actor. He didn't like going into the room and doing his thing. And he, and he I guess he feels uncomfortable having actors come in and because he wants to give every one of them the job, but he can't. So he says, you know what? I can't do that. I'll, I'll make my decisions based on what I see on the videotape. So it's nice because he chose you. But at the same time, you go in there and you realize, oh, in this tiny, small little office that we've got set up, it's Clint Eastwood, Bradley Cooper, the guy working the camera, and me. Right, right. Okay. How did I get into this room? Academy Award, Academy Award. Whoa, hello, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, okay, here I am. But, and I also understood, you know, going back to the to the scene, what had happened prior to that, that the scene just before that was the scene where he almost beats the dog with his belt. I mean, yep. it was a very dramatic, uh, very loud, uh, emotionally involved scene. So I thought it would be a nice segue to have something really quiet here. Re don't, don't push it because we need a break from that. And then I also thought, okay, we've all been to therapists in life, especially if you're an actor. <laughs> You've all been to freaking therapists at some point in your life. I said, what's the worst thing that a therapist could say to you first off? So that's when I thought, I'm going to say, your wife called <laughs> and, and it was, it, and it, it worked perfectly because he did not expect that because he knew, you know, as an actor and Bradley is so present, by the way, I mean, when he was, when I was working with him, Bradley Cooper had disappeared. It was Chris Kyle that was there. Right. He spoke with a, with a Texas accent. He'd bulked up, put on a ton of weight, uh, you know, muscle, uh, his blue eyes were still there, but he was, he was Chris Kyle. And so when I looked at him and it said, your wife called me, he knew that the jig was up. He couldn't bullshit me. He had to be honest. He couldn't hide that. I knew everything. And that, right. and that I think made the scene really come from a very honest, uh, vulnerable place. And when he and I were speaking, we never stepped on anybody's lines. It was bizarre. We were just having a conversation. And I had read Chris Kyle's book. So I was really interested. And I also had heard an interview with him. So I knew his story. I found him to be fascinating anyway. And then to be blessed to be a part of this. I thought this, this is, I, I, I need to honor this. And so the scene went extremely well. It was actually Clint's favorite scene in the movie. Uh, it was a scene that they showed at the Academy Awards because Bradley was nominated for an Oscar. And after I finished the, uh, the scene, I was talking to the writer and I said, you know what? I said, that scene would make a great trailer. Because yeah. you're, and it turned out to be the trailer. They used my voiceover as the trailer. It was because it, it, everything was just so, dare I say, perfect it was just very succinct it was simple it was direct it was to the point you know do you ever think you're uh, you know you're uh, whatever it was i mean are you ever afraid whatever those the, those words that i said were just just 
resonated and they then they were able to put pieces of of the movie in that but but overlay the voiceover and um the, the movie is is i th- i think brilliant it's 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 classic it's great it's one of those things that i'll always be proud to be a part of and uh bradley and both and mr eastwood were the best absolutely the best you know when you're working with people that are at the top of their game uh you just have to roll with it if you don't fight it you just go with it and you just trust and by doing that it turned out to be i think uh, a really really wonderful experience even though it was intimidating ahead of time when it was happening it was probably the easiest thing i've ever done Love that. Yeah, and again, that scene is so powerful. To have yeah. for you to be part of that, it's, it's got to be pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. And so, kind of want to segue to like the last part here. And with Ancient Aliens, there's this fan base with Alien Todd, and I'm good friends with Dr. Greer, but there's people who don't like him, there's people that love Bob Lazar, they hate that guy. All these personalities in this big UFO kind of disclosure type field, yeah. yet. The fan base is so like vibrant and so like. How was that for you to like kind of be a part of that? Where, like, are you into the alien stuff, or is this something where you kind of it's a job? But the, the fans look up to you as like one of that. That's gotta be kind of cool. Yeah, it's it's really nice. Everybody wants to whenever I go to these conventions. Everybody wants me to say, uh, I'll say it because everybody needs to hear it. Is it possible? Could it be? What if it were true? Ancient astronaut theorists say yes. <laughs> so you go to the <laughs> you go to these these conventions, and they they're wearing the T-shirts that say "Ancient astronaut theorists say yes." That it it turned into a a catchphrase, and it's 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 it's, it's magical to be be around the people. Uh, I'm I'm very outgoing anyway. I really enjoy being with people, and I'm. I like to think that I'm humble. I mean, you know, I if, if, right. if it wasn't me doing it, it would be somebody else that's doing it. Uh, when I listen to the show, I think, yeah, it kind of it, it really works. <laughs> I like my voice with this because it it uh, somehow it kind of gets into your brain. A lot of people have come up to me, especially women. They say, you know, we find your voice to be very soothing. We'll put on the show, and if we're having a bad day, it kind of relaxes me and puts me to sleep. But in a good way, they always say in a good way. Um, so it's 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 an honor to be a part of it. And you ask me whether I I believe uh, I'm my my eyes have been open to some pretty amazing experiences. I've I've become very good friends with Giorgio. Uh, uh, How is that guy? Like, he looks like a bad scientist. <laughs> Giorgio is uh, incredibly sensitive, bright kind uh smart articulate charismatic funny people you're ever going to want to meet he it, it. you know he, he, this this kind of caught him by surprise whenever we do see each other we comment about how how amazing this ride is that we're on together with the show because it started out it started out as just one episode you know i did an episode about the moon and he was brought into to it as a uh, as an expert because he had worked on a different documentary that I also narrated about Indiana Jones and the crystal skulls or something. And uh, the producer found him to be interesting. So, Oh, let's, why don't we use this guy, bring him into the show. And so they brought him in 
and his character just took off. I mean, the the person that he is, the the whole hair thing is is kind of a, a, a was a mistake. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't by design, <laughs> and but people resonate to it, so it's like okay, now he now he does that. But I remember the first Alien Con that we ever went to, it caught us all by surprise that there were thousands and thousands of people that were showing up that were fans of the show. And he was treated like he was a, a rock star and there was like no security. Uh, you know, I was able to handle a little bit more, better because I'm, you know, I'm say I'm used to being around thousands of people, but it, it doesn't really scare me. I kind of, you know, I, I, kind of in, enjoy that a little bit. I, 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 and they use me right. at these conventions, kind of like the, the MC, the master of ceremonies to kind of come out and introduce everyone, which is, which is a lot of fun. But you, I sit in the green room and I overhear these conversations with Linda Moulton, Howe and Nick Pope or Giorgio or David Childress. And it's, it's way beyond. <laughs> I can comprehend, but it's everybody on that show. A is an a personality. I mean, there, there's not a, a, a you know, a, a wallflower in the group, but at the same time, they're all respectful of each, of each other, even if they get into arguments about certain things. There's respect and they're fascinating. They're charismatic. Um, and I, I actually met a woman at a convention who actually worked at NASA. I ended up getting her on the show, as a matter of fact. And she told me a story about something that she was a firsthand witness to on Apollo 17, where she was literally in mission control. Her job was to monitor the vital signs of the astronauts that were on the moon. And so she was listening to a conversation between Ron Evans, who was the command module pilot and mission control, where he described a UFO that followed him around the moon for six orbits. He said it was cigar-shaped, which she said is the most common form, that in triangle-shaped of a UFO, that it had acrylic markings on it, like writing, had writing on it. it this And Ivan said, this is not American. This is not Russian. I don't know what it is. Followed him in formation for about six orbits around the moon and then flew off. Now, she also spoke to Ron Evans on the Ticonderoga because she was part of the debriefing crew and she saw him in a, in a stateroom, you know, at, at, on this aircraft carrier. And, uh, after he landed and said, how are you doing, Ron? He says, uh, he goes, and she said, are you still thinking about the anomaly? Cause that's what they called it, an anomaly. And he says, yeah, because, uh, because you aware of that. And she says, yeah, I, I was part of the conversation. And he, he just was saying it was something he'd never experienced in his life. He didn't know what the heck it was. And this is a guy who was a former Navy fighter pilot in Vietnam. This is not a guy right. that's easily rattled. So right. when, when you have, and this, and I heard this story only by chance. She came up to me at this convention in Dallas that nobody was at. And, and we were just talking. She was a fan of the show. And she mentioned she worked at NASA. And I said, well, anything ever happened there that, you haven't yeah. talked about that. She goes, well, you know, the statute of limitations is so, yeah, I can talk about it. And she mentioned it. And this person is not a BSer. I mean, you know, right. <laughs> you know, Ron Evans took photographs of it. Those photographs have never been revealed. Um, it's, you know, and she would say that she, she would be at parties 
with with astronauts from different missions and they would be discussing things that they saw that didn't make any sense so do i think that something's out there i think there's a pretty good chance and supposedly in 180 days roughly they're yeah. going to release whatever they know we'll see they should uh when they release whatever the transcript you should just have you read everything wouldn't that be nice? Cool. Yeah, that'd be incredible. <laughs> so before I let you go, um, I know we have the ancient aliens and Oak Island doing great. You were just Seth, motion capture and voice in uh, Last Bus Part 2. Yep. What other projects do you have coming up leading into the well, new year once things start opening back up again? Well, we certainly have uh, – we didn't even discuss Beyond Oak Island, which is the, the spinoff yes. of Rick and Marty's show. And that's doing incredibly well in the ratings as well. Uh, so I, I – Pretty much anticipate we're going to be doing uh, more of those. Ancient Aliens is now in production again. We've got a very interesting um, few shows that are that are coming up. I don't want to give anything away, uh, but because they're they're not able, nobody's able to really travel to go to these locations. We had a right. slightly different different format for a few few episodes at least, which I think is going to be really really interesting it's something that i think the uh the fans have been asking for it's almost going to be as if alien con came into your uh into your house you had you had a you had a oh wow you're you're right there with 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 everybody and there is a uh well it'll, it'll be released eventually as to awesome there's somebody that's very special that's also involved with it I, that i think is going to be really great um and i think they're just starting to put those episodes together this, uh, this week at the, at the, at the recording studio. Um, we've got the, uh, uh, is it the secret of Skinwalker ranch or the mystery. I can't, I can't yes. remember. So that, mystery, I yeah, that's coming yeah. up that I do the, uh, the opening for, and, you know, fingers crossed. I, I have faith that, uh, Oak Island, they're going to be able to get back up there in, in March or April. We're only goodness. I don't even think we're a, a third of the way through as far as, uh, recording all the episodes for this current season because I think there's going to be somewhere around 24, 26 episodes of that, and they've got a, apparently some really dramatic finds that they make this year, which is which is surprising because everybody thought, my goodness, this this show may not even make it because we can't get up there. To now, they're finding really incredible stuff. Um, right, and you know. I, there's, there's all, there's always something, you know, for me, knock on wood, you know, I, I keep, I keep uh, pretty busy, you know, and those, no. those three or four shows are, you know, that's almost like a full-time gig. I'm, I'm there just about every single week doing, doing one of them or, or several of them. Have you ever, have you ever kind of read the script of say an ancient alien over the, a, a random soundless tables like say oak island or vice versa where i wonder if you'd be kind of like if your fans would be like what because when i get to those shows flipping back and forth or going to these rabbit holes watching eight hours in a row and you never see the same episode twice right and you start watching i'm like man i wonder if i guess the point of hour five where i can watch h aliens but here's robert talking about oak island to see if i'd even recognize it <laughs> that would be that would be funny. No, I, I haven't. I know there's that there's, there's a couple of drinking games that are associated with uh, with ancient aliens <laughs> that, that sometimes do. Uh, but I can't condone. But I can't say don't do it. Yeah. Say listen, you're yeah. at home. It's your business. Yeah. As long as as long as you're having fun and enjoying yourself. But you know, come on. It's it's uh, 
you could be doing a lot worse things than than watching those shows. Believe me. So and then if I want to find you on social media, do you have Twitter? I know you have Twitter, yeah, Instagram, Twitter, anything you know, else. Twitter. You said Rob underscore Clotworthy. Uh, uh, there's Instagram, Robert Clotworthy, I think, in, in my Facebook page. The best one I, is, I think, is Twitter. That's the one that I pay the most attention to. And uh, we'll, try, we'll interact with the fans. Also, just just so you know, I'm also on Cameo if people want a little video shout out. And there's a new which site, I love. There's an, and there's a new site which is really cool that I just started uh, with. It's called Jemmy, J E M I. And what this is, it's kind of a, a marketplace. And one of the things I was able to do normally, I would, I would only be able to do this at a convention, but I do save my personal scripts from these shows. And so what I would oh, that's cool. What I would do is I would, uh, you know, make it really nice. I put like a nice cover on it and it's my, it's got my handwritten notes in there, one of a kind, and I would sell those at conventions. So now I'm able to kind of offer that to people through this site called Jemmy, along with, uh, you know, an autograph of, of, you know, Oak Island or ancient aliens or even martial law is, is up there. <laughs> the best. So, it, and it's, and it's a really, really nice site. The, uh, the lady that, uh, that run it, she's only been doing this. For a, for a few months now, so it's still kind of in the beta phase, but I think it's really going to take off, and it's it's gr it's great to be able to offer some of those things that were only available in conventions, and you know otherwise it's like you're sending me an email and it's like I'm trying to get your address, and I, you know it's it's a it's a little bit complicated. This one's a little little bit easier. Keep so, organized. I like there. that. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you, Robert, uh, for this, and uh, I wish you all continued success, and then uh, I'll keep watching all the shows. All right, John. Thank you so much for inviting me and everybody. Thank you very, very much. I hope I wasn't too, uh, too long-winded, <laughs> but I really love it. Thank you, John. Thank you. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.